Psalm number four. Psalm number four. Uh, we're going to read the whole of this psalm, and then we have several readings also from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we'll be turning to Luke chapter eight first of all. So Psalm number four, and then we'll turn to Luke chapter eight. It's my intention over the next, uh, this week and next week, to go through several more of the psalms, and then God willing, in the month of August, to plan to preach through the book of Ruth in the morning. And we'll continue on with the Psalms in the evening. Uh, But today, God willing, we'll be studying Psalm 4 and then this evening, Psalm 5. So let's read Psalm 4 together. Psalm 4, a a psalm that's probably well known and loved by many of you, boys and girls. Maybe some of you sing some of the words of this psalm with your mums and dads each night before bed. I know that's a a popular and a a great practice across our, our wider church Uh, A wonderfully comforting psalm in the end, but as we'll see today, a psalm that faces difficult circumstances as well. So Psalm 4, let's hear God's word together. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honour be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, Selah? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent, Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen. Then please turn with me to Luke's Gospel and chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I'm going to read, first of all, from Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. Then we'll turn also to Luke chapter 23. And I want to draw your attention to some incidents in Jesus' life where we see this psalm partially fulfilled or where we see Jesus living out the directives, directions of Psalm 4. So Luke chapter 8, and we read from verse 22. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Then we turn also to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we'll read verses 1 to 12, and then verses 44 to 46. Luke 23, and we read verses 1 to 12. First of all, Jesus at this point has been arrested and he's now going through the series of uh, farcical trials that he was put through before his death. 
Luke 23 and verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Then finally, verses 44 to 46 of this chapter. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Amen. This is God's word. Well, you can perhaps turn back with me to Psalm 4 and have that open in front of you as we come to study it together this morning. Psalm 4. And our theme for this morning is, give me some space. Give me some space. Have you ever said those words to someone? Or maybe if you didn't say them, you were thinking them at least. Give me some space. Maybe you've uttered those words with some irritation to a spouse or a child or a colleague or a friend. Just, just give me a break. Give my head peace. Give me some space. The book of Psalms is the most honest, uh, true-to-life hymn book in existence. And it doesn't shy away from the fact that sometimes a bit of space is exactly what we feel we need. Psalm 4 in some ways goes hand in hand with Psalm 3. And I know it probably feels like quite a while ago that we looked at Psalm 3 together. But it's often been said that Psalm 3 is a psalm for the morning and Psalm 4 is a psalm for the evening. If you look at Psalm 3 verse 5, it says, I lay down and slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Psalm 4 seems to be a psalm written for the evening by contrast. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. So here's someone going off to sleep, boys and girls. Maybe, as I said earlier, maybe you sing this psalm before you go to sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So it's a psalm perhaps for just before your head hits the pillow. But more importantly, Psalm 3, uh, sorry, Psalm 4, like Psalm 3, is a psalm for troubled times, for difficult circumstances. 
Psalm 3, we saw a few weeks ago, was written by David when his son Absalom was leading a conspiracy against him and was seeking to take the throne from him. We don't know exactly when Psalm 4 was written, but it could have been written at perhaps the same time or just as equally stressful a time as that. A time when the pressure was piling on David. A time when David needed some space. Perhaps he wrote it facing, still facing the threat of his rebellious son. Perhaps he was facing uh, a war. Uh, as we know, David often was going off to fight wars. Perhaps it was a time of economic difficulty. Perhaps there were conspiracies of one kind or another against him. Whatever it was that caused David to write this psalm, it's a fitting psalm, friends, for all kinds of circumstances that you and I still face today. When we just need some space. Perhaps for young people, you feel that as, uh, as you look ahead a few months' time to September and you weigh up options for school or study or work. Perhaps parents feel that in the busyness of home and work and church life. Perhaps for those of you who are older, you're, you're growing tired of the doctor's appointments and hospital appointments and the tests and the checks and aches and pains. Perhaps some of you feel this need for space just because you're at a bit of a low ebb spiritually as we all can be at different times. You're feeling distracted and tempted and discouraged. Interestingly enough, David begins this psalm by pretty much asking God for some space. Not space from God, but space from his problems. Look what he says in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. And the Hebrew word there that we've translated relief in the ESV, it could also be translated space or room. One writer translates it, in tight, in tight places you have made space for me. So here's a psalm friend saying, God, give me some space. And if that's how you're feeling today, Here's a psalm for you. How does David go about getting some peace, some relief, some space in his life? Well, he directs us here to do several things, which we'll think about each of them fairly briefly. But first of all, I want you to see from this psalm that if you need space today, first of all, you need to lift up your head. Lift up your head. Look at David's very first words in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Here's one of these very blunt, bold, direct openings to a psalm. Answer me, O God. He's not holding back. He's, he's not coming out with a lot of, you know, uh, just hyperbole and what I call Christianese. You know, a lot of fancy words that don't really mean very much. He says, answer me, O God. He's direct. He's earnest. He doesn't beat about the bush. You could say he's even demanding here. Such is the pressure that David feels under. But notice, friends, that in such a, a pressured situation, it's God that David turns to. And he turns to God first and foremost. He lifts his head away from his, above his problems, away from his enemies, away from the temptations. And he looks to God, as it were, in faith and in prayer. How can David be so direct and demanding in his prayer? Well, look how he describes God, God of my righteousness. 
God of my righteousness. What he's saying there is several things. He's saying that God himself is perfectly righteous. But he's also saying that God is the judge of righteousness. That God can look at any circumstance, any situation, and God can judge between who is in the right and who is in the wrong. And in this particular circumstance, David has full confidence that God will look at him and see that he is in the right. This doesn't mean that David is saying that he was a perfect man. We know that he wasn't. But he's saying in in this particular situation, whatever the nature of it was, he knows that he is in the right and others are in the wrong. And he trusts God to judge between the right and the wrong. God will vindicate him. God will declare him righteous. He shows this confidence again in verse 3. He says, God has set apart the godly for himself. Set apart the godly. Uh, And the word there for set apart in the original is closely tied to the word for holiness. Uh, That's really the, the heart of what it means that if someone or something is holy, it means they're set apart uh, they're, they're not like the rest. If you think, for example, in the Old Testament, the, the tribe of Levi was set apart and the Levites were priests. They had a, a special role amongst the tribes of Israel. They were holy in that sense. The, the clothes that they wore were set apart clothes. The, the things that they handled in the temple and tabernacle were set apart for holy use. And what David is saying here is that he is part of God's holy people. Uh, the people that God treats differently and has a, a different relationship with compared to the other people of the world, God's chosen people, the people that he loves with covenant love. And so friends, in a, in a tra- traumatic, problematic circumstance of life, the first thing David does in need of space, he lifts his head. He looks, he looks to heaven, he looks to God, he brings his prayer to him directly and immediately. Now I can only speak for myself, but I suspect I'm not the only one. But when I find myself in tight spaces, my first reaction is not always to, to lift my head and remember the gracious Father I have in heaven who's willing to, to listen and answer Sometimes instead of doing that, our first reaction is to bury our heads in self-pity or in frustration or in bitterness or to look not to God but to other people for relief or to other things for relief and for space, to some distraction or some entertainment or some person that we hope will fix it all. Friends, we're mistaken when we do that. We're foolish when we do that. When we're in need of space, when we're in need of relief, We need to lift our heads away from all those other people and things and look to our Father in heaven. Ralph Davis says, David's prayers are both intelligent and desperate. It's interesting to put those words together, isn't it? Intelligent and desperate. There is a desperation to David here. And yet there's intelligence in him as well. Who else would he bother to turn to? Who else can help him but his Father in heaven? He knows the God to whom he's praying. He knows that he's a God who does give mercy and grace to his set-apart people. And so David knows that there is no one else to turn to when he is in need of space and relief. I wonder, do we know that today? 
Do we follow not only David's example, but the example of our Savior? We read earlier when he was in the tightest of spaces, kneeled to a cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we know that Jesus was in prayer all the way leading up to his death on the cross, trusting in his heavenly Father. Friends, may we follow his example and in our tight spaces lift our heads. But then as well as lifting our heads when we need some space, we also sometimes need to keep our lips sealed. We need to lift our heads. We need to keep our lips sealed. Now, of course, we've seen David does not keep his lips sealed with regard to God. He opens his mouth. He prays to God. But in relation to his enemies, friends, David stays silent. And he advises his fellow believers to be silent as well. Look at verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So two things he says there. Be angry but be silent. This is why we love the Psalms, is it not? I never want us to read them without thinking about uh, the, the circumstances in which they were written. We're, we're not to read these things and think that these are just written by someone sitting in some ivory tower somewhere, you know, not living in the real world. This is King David, who spent 10 years on the run, even though he knew that he was God's chosen king. And then even after he became king, he dealt with conspiracies and enemies and wars all his life. He knows what it's like, friends, to face pressure and injustice and mistrust. But look at the, look at the problem he's facing in verse 2, for example. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Here's David perhaps facing a campaign of uh, lies and slander being spoken about him. Just things that just weren't true. And yet perhaps it's the influential, popular, respected people who are saying these things. Uh, in verse 2 he says it's sons of men. That means important people. Uh, the so-called experts, the, the columnists in the newspapers, the, the people with the most followers on Facebook or Twitter, they're the ones coming out with these lies. How do we naturally want to respond when we see lies being told, particularly about us, but perhaps about other things as well, about the church, about the world we live in. Well, we want to make our voice heard, don't we? Or we want somebody to make their voice heard and have a swipe back at the people that are swiping at us. But how does David respond? Notice the end of verse 2, the word selah. Now, the word selah is a Hebrew word meaning pause, stop, think it over. Weigh up what's going on. Take a breath. And then David says in verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Friends, it's possible to be angry without being sinful. Oftentimes we're angry and we are sinful. We shouldn't be angry at all. Or we express that anger in sinful ways. But it is possible to be angry and to not sin. Jesus got angry, something people ignore about Jesus. He got angry at times. He was angry at the Pharisees. He was angry at the sight of 
evil spirits oppressing people. He was angry at the sight of injustice in the temple, you remember, but he didn't sin. Instead, David says, ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. One writer says, sometimes one of the godliest things you can do is to keep your mouth shut. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes one of the godliest things you can do is to keep your mouth shut. You might be in the right. You might be receiving unfair treatment. There might be people telling lies about you. But if we open our mouths in anger, if we open our mouths without pausing to think, we might make the situation even worse. We might even sin against God himself. And this becomes tricky because we're living in a culture that is very keen to tell us about our rights. Is very keen to tell us that we have our little platforms on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else. And we should make our voices heard. We should get our opinion out there. We need to be careful. We need to take a silah. We need to pause. Be careful what you post on social media, friends. Be careful when deciding whether or not someone or something needs a response from you at all. Even if you're in the right and they're in the wrong, think before you type. Think before you speak. Ponder before you pontificate. And some of us, our natural tendency is to let them have it sometimes. We need to pause. We need to be angry and yet not sin in the classroom, in the kitchen, online, in the office, wherever it is. Ecclesiastes 3 says there is a time for everything. Ecclesiastes 3, 7, a time to keep silence and yes, a time to speak. But I think in the culture in which we live, we might need to think through more carefully, when are the times to keep silent? Do you think Jesus had no problem with the vain words and lies that were told about him before they put him to death? Yet how did he respond? We read earlier and Matthew 27, 14 says similar. He gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was amazed. And yes, of course, part of the reason Jesus kept silent was because he was going to the cross. He was going to fulfill the work that his father gave him to do. But friends, he was also giving us a pattern to follow in some circumstances. That sometimes, sometimes, the godliest thing we can do is to keep our lips sealed. So lift up your head. Sometimes keep your lips sealed. And thirdly, when we need some space, we should worship our God. We should worship our God. We should not ignore the place and priority of worship in those times of pressure and pain and worry and this is what David directs people to do he doesn't just tell people to be silent but he also then directs them to do something else rather than get angry and sin look at verse 5 offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord and one writer says that maybe David has in mind here very especially his most loyal supporters and the people who would be most likely to say well let's just answer back let's get the truth out there let's let's meet these people uh, let's fight them off david says before you go to them go to god before you speak worship remember 
in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, we're told about an occasion where James and John, two of Jesus' most loyal followers, uh, they heard some people in the, in the Samaritan region, uh, they wouldn't let Jesus come into their village. And James and John say to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven upon them? You know, they were, they were outraged that these people had insulted Jesus. Jesus just basically said, don't worry about it, fellas. You know, calm down. Let's just go on to the next town. They were too hot-headed. And David says that rather than letting ourselves become frustrated and angry, we should sometimes focus our energy on more worship of our God. He says, verse 5, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And sacrifices, of course, particularly in the Old Testament context, means worship. David says, rather than getting all annoyed about sin and sinners out there in the world, take some time to worship in the way God has provided for you to worship. And again, it's so relevant for our own culture this very day. The importance of worshiping together, worshiping regularly, worshiping as often as possible with the people of God is badly underestimated today. It was before the pandemic. In some, in some instances, that's been made worse by the pandemic. I've spoken to pastors in other churches even in the last few weeks who are just not seeing some of their people, even still, coming back to worship. I was talking to a friend recently. He said he and his wife had been in a conversation with some friends, young, healthy people, no underlying health conditions, just not going back to church yet. Well, we've just got into a routine. You know, we, we really just like that Sunday day together at home. That's idolatry. Idolizing comfort and ease and family over gathering with the people of God. Worship exists in part to remind us that it's not about us. Remember when we looked at Genesis, we saw how God put those two trees at the center of the garden. He didn't put Adam in the center of the garden. He put the two trees there. And that was symbolic of the fact that Adam's life was to revolve around God and his word and not himself. Worship is about him, our Lord and Savior. It is about publicly making known his worth and his goodness and his grace and how that is to be acknowledged and, and rejoiced over by all men and women and boys and girls. And not only is it about coming to worship God, it's about coming to encourage one another. You will be an encouragement to your fellow Christians by being in the place of worship, whether in your own church or elsewhere when you're away. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And yes, of course, there are legitimate reasons why people sometimes are unable to come to worship and we're not indifferent to those. But I'm talking about when in all normal circumstances, when there's nothing stopping us from being there physically or, or for any other reason. David says in the midst of the, the pressure of the world and the hatred of the world and the injustice of the world, don't stop worshiping. Don't stop trusting. Hard times are not reasons to stop worship, but to commit ourselves all the more to worship. 
Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, was also a devoted pastor. He loved his people dearly. It was, in fact, in many ways, it was love for his people that spurred him to act in, the re- in what became the Reformation. But if someone ever came to Martin Luther for help or pastoral guidance, uh, and if that person hadn't been worshipping regularly with God's people, Luther wouldn't say or do anything more with them until they had begun going back to the place of worship. That's how important he believed worship was. It's in the times of busyness and pressure and needing some space, friends, that we need to stop looking at ourselves and come into the place of worship and look at our great God. And Psalm 4 does not offer any solutions as such to life's problems, not saying go to worship and everything will be fine on Monday morning. That's not what we believe. That's not why we worship. But he says instead, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It's an expression of trust in God that even if we don't know the solutions to our problems today or tomorrow or the next day, we trust that our sovereign God is in control and he will bring about all things for good in due time. And today we come and we worship God offering the sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of service and so forth. But we come ultimately, friends, knowing that the full and final sacrifice to God has been made, that Jesus Christ has died and is raised, and we can get space even in the tightest corners of our lives when we lift our heads and open our lips and worship God together. So in times of needing space and relief, we are to lift our heads. Sometimes we are to keep our lips sealed. We are to worship our God. Fourthly, we're to relish our true joy. We are to relish our true joy. And this really goes hand in hand with what I've just been saying about worship. But if you look at verse 6, David says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? In other words, who's going to look after us? Who's going to help us? Who's going to sort things out? And again, Don't we naturally want immediate answers to things? We we want someone to fix it. We want to see the problem solved. Sometimes perhaps we pray for a person, for a situation, and rather than the situation getting better, it gets worse. The loved one suffers even more. The future becomes all the more concerning. The problem is no closer to being solved. But nonetheless, friends, in times of despair, David relishes true joy. He says in verse 6, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us. Uh, the words there are taken from what's known as the, the ironic blessing, the blessing that Aaron pronounced in God's people in number 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And when we're in a tight corner, David says what will get us through will be our relationship with the Lord, knowing that the Lord has his face shining upon us, knowing that we're in relationship with him, knowing that he keeps his covenant promises. That language of God's face shining on us, it's the language of relationship. Picture a bride and bridegroom on their wedding day. And the bride comes up the aisle and they meet at 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 the top, at the front of the building, and they look at each other. And there's a relationship there that's about to be publicly recognized and solemnized. And there's, there's a unique love and trust and dependency and blessing between those two. 
And when we read of God's face upon us in the scriptures, friends, that's the picture. It's of a loving king, a loving bridegroom, a loving shepherd who knows us, who knows our needs, and who will see to those needs in his perfect providence and care. He says in verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Probably what gave people in David's day, and even perhaps still in our own day, what gave them joy more than anything else was a really fruitful, bountiful harvest. Bringing in the crops, seeing the, the fields lush with fruit, bringing in the, the grapes and the vines and so forth, and a fruitful year, hard work rewarded. David says, what gives him even more joy than that is joy in his God, joy in his Saviour. Charles Spurgeon says, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barn. Corn and wine are but fruits of the world, but the light of God's countenance is the ripe fruit of heaven. Substitute whatever you you need to there for grain and wine. What does Jesus give you more joy than? More joy than work, more joy than possessions, more joy than even family, more joy than health and strength. Can you say that with the Psalms today? You have given me more joy than any of those other things. Friends, in times of needing space, in times of needing relief from pressure, relish your true joy. And then finally and very briefly today, in times of needing space, having lifted up your head, having kept your lips sealed, having worshipped your God and relished your true joy, lie down in your bed. Lie down in your bed. See, the Psalms are very practical. There's such a thing as a sanctified snooze, a sanctified sleep. We thought about this when we looked at Psalm 3, but it comes out again here at Psalm 4. The very last verse, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Again, here's a man who spent 10 years or more of his life on the run. He didn't get to lie down on a memory foam mattress, but on the hard desert ground not with a, a goose, goose down pillow under his head, but with a rock for his pillow. And yet he was able to say, I lie down and I sleep because you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Sometimes, friends, with his circumstances not sorted out, with his enemies still hunting him down, with the pressure still waiting for him the next day, David just had to lie down and get a good night's sleep. And sometimes lying down to sleep is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. As I said in Psalm 3, sometimes we lie down and sleep and the problem hasn't vanished and the enemies haven't gone away. But we take an act of faith and we trust that even as we sleep, God is still in control and God will bring all things about for good. As we read earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ was able to lie down and sleep through a storm, partly because he was so tired out from loving and serving people all day, but also because he trusted the will and plan of his heavenly Father. And you remember his question to his disciples once he had woken up and sorted out the storm? 
Where is your faith? Sometimes lying down to sleep is an act of faith. And maybe some of you here today are listening in online. Maybe one of the reasons you don't sleep is because you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much going on in your life and you've run out of answers. And you're unable to see a way forward. And you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. One writer says, How many of our sleepless hours might be traced to our untrusting and disordered minds? They slumber sweetly, whom faith rocks to sleep. Do you lack sleep because you lack faith? Now that's not the only reason we sometimes lack sleep. But do you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you lie down in peace even when you're under pressure because you know that God will make you dwell in safety? And so we all do surely have those days when we think, even if we don't say, give me some space. But how do you get space? Lift up your head. Keep your lips sealed. Keep on worshipping. Keep Christ as your greatest joy. And then lie down and take your sleep in peace and in faith. Trusting that the same God who calls you righteous because of the blood of his Son will answer your prayers according to his good purposes. Amen.